Hey there, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with interesting people in direct consumer, e-com and tech. I'm your host, Tim. This is series two of 2021 and the subject is something close to my heart, food and drink. Over the next six episodes, I'll sit down with leaders and innovators in the food and drink space to get their state of play, learnings from 2020 and predictions for this year and beyond. On this episode, I sit down with Jeannie Newton, founder of Karma Cans, a corporate catering service, and Karma Kitchen, a venture that is transforming industrial spaces into beautiful commercial kitchens, co-working, and storage. We touch on how Karma Cans led to the creation of Karma Kitchen, the advantages of running a business with your sister, building communities, and how a trip to Norfolk to buy a kitchen for 600 pounds ended up being a very wise decision. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you? I am good, thank you. I'm just sitting in my very empty office in Shoreditch. We took on um, our original office as having like some roof work done to it. So we've been moved into a very swanky corporate office um, in Shoreditch. And it's, and I've gone corporate. I feel like I can't go back. I mean, we've got running water, we've got meeting rooms. It's a real upgrade. Um, but yeah, pretty much I'm here alone today. So it's great. <laughs> Is Am I right? I don't know. I, I've... Uh, been upgraded to first class before on a, on a flight to Australia, and I feel that that was a, a, a very horrible move because I can't go back. Are you? Is it something similar? Yeah, I feel like it, I've hit that point. Yeah, I always try to upgrade to first class. I heard that you have to like. Um, I heard like all the tricks because my friend worked um, as an air hostess, and apparently you're meant to when you board the plane, that's when you do it. You're meant to give some chocolates and be like, "Hey, I've got these chocolates," and um, and it never works. No way. So that's so funny. Do you know what? That is so funny. So I did the exact same thing. I never tried it at the point of entry into the plane. I always tried it when I was at the check-in disc. And this is obviously going back a while, you know, pre-online sort of check-in and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But I, I did the same thing. I, I pretended that I was a doctor. I said that I was afraid of flying. I said, look, I really need to be at the front of the plane. There's just, there's something, I've got this real fear. Never, not once did it ever work. And then one time, randomly i like i was boarding the plane you know when you get your like boarding pass and i was like look can i can i book a, a um a window seat and, and the woman's like it's okay sir you've got a uh, you've got a very good seat and i was like no I, I just really need like a window seat is that right she's like sir you've got a really good seat and she kind of shoved the boarding guard in my face and then i looked at the number and it was like one or number two and i was like ah so i got upgraded without having to do anything well you obviously I went to all of that and I didn't even get upgraded I also like think about dressing to you know if I dress a certain way maybe they think I should be in first class so I'll, I'll put so much effort in but yet to experience it so well there you go all right well that, that's a whole other podcast you know tricks and tips to get into first class so we'll, 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 we'll pull that off we'll put a pin in that and, and pick that up in another conversation I want to rewind a little bit and We've got two things to kind of talk about here. We've got Karma Cans and we've got Karma Kitchen. I think for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to focus a little bit more on, on the Karma Kitchen side, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about how 
Karma Cans came about and how that spawned into Karma Kitchen. Could you give me a little bit of insight? So Karma Cans is a corporate catering business that we started in, I think, 2014. And um, my sister and I founded both businesses, both Karma Cans and Karma Kitchen. So Karma Cans started with just like us cooking from our mum's kitchen and delivering these like lunches to different individuals around London. And then it grew and grew. And, you know, now it's a, a corporate catering business that does around a thousand meals a day, kind of pre, pre-COVID. But um, we then pivoted to NHS, like everyone thought. We love the word pivot, but uh, <laughs> one of our biggest challenges with Karma Cans was basically finding kitchen space. And we ended up moving three times in one year. We spent all of our money on like CapEx and operations, which is just a nightmare. And for so many other food businesses, they face this issue of like, you you don't can't find the right place to scale. And in tech, you can walk into, you know, a co-working space and you've got everything sorted, your culture, your space, you can grow within that infrastructure. But in food and drink, the barriers are, are just a lot higher and the cost of setting up a kitchen is not, it's not a joke. You know, it, it costs a lot. Like we had a bit of luck um, in finding our like kitchen equipment and we basically, there was this chocolate factory in Norfolk and <laughs> so random, but um, it was closing down and it had a commercial kitchen. And we basically were like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. We, we need all of this stuff. And we basically said, we'll take everything for 600 pounds. And I don't think they knew how much it was worth. I mean, they were more focused on getting rid of the chocolate equipment, um, like manufacturer. And so we took a van and we ripped out the whole space. I mean, we ripped out, I mean, my sister is so good at DIY and I'm absolutely useless. So I just looked at it all and I was like, how are we gonna put this into a kitchen? So we rent, we rented this van, ripped it all out. And then we took this shipping container in Hackney and we just unloaded the van and there was just so much equipment. We couldn't fit it into the shipping container. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, like, what are we doing? We're just so clueless. And we had to trade a lot of favors. Bixie had zero cash. Um, and one of our friends, he had a cold brew coffee company and he actually was a plumber, but he had started this cold brew coffee company and he needed catering for his investors. And we just said, look, if you plumb our kitchen, we will do free food. And the whole story of Karma Cats, and I don't know how it ever survived, but we just traded a lot of favors with very little cash. And we built this shipping container kitchen. And then within three months, we outgrew it. Like it was perfect for our operations. We're doing about 300 meals a day, but the storage of vegetables and stuff like that were like literally exploding out onto the street and probably really pissing off our neighbors. So we ended up moving again and like, it, it was just hard and we nearly failed. And when we finally found our warehouse, which Karma Cans is still in, in Hackney, um, we subletted it because we just couldn't cope with the increase in you know rent, but also just the, the lease length was so much longer. You know, it's, five years so other people in food we realized were suffering with similar things we subletted a corner of our kitchen it's just so funny like a corner to island poke and they did rice production there um 26 grains who's got a site in neil's yard and now stony street actually she did some corporate catering or events catering there and we just like made it work and then we built this mezzanine like to call it like a little office upstairs but really what it was was scaffolding above the kitchen a little tree house where we used to work and my friend Florence, who runs Pickle House, which does Bloody Marys, and um, she rented an office space, which was hilarious because we would work opposite each other. And whenever the kitchen like burned something or making like fish or chili, it would just it would just rise. Obviously, everything would rise to the mezzanine, and we'd be like choking. But we were there for a good, you know, two years in that office, or maybe even longer. 
And she seemed really happy with the situation. <laughs> Looking back on it, I can't believe we charged her money to rent this like scaffolding mezzanine. But that's kind of um, where the idea came from is we couldn't believe it, you know, there was an infrastructure to support these food businesses. And we came up with the idea of the Calm Kitchen. And we were basically building the solution for something that we needed uh, when we started. And we were, you know, I was 21 when I started Calm Can. So just lots of learnings there, but that's where the idea of Karma Kitchen comes from. And we bake Karma Kitchen builds commercial kitchens for, for businesses at every point of growth from like startup to SME to, to large scale production businesses. That's amazing. And, and for those that don't know, like, I, I suppose a couple of questions, do you, you, do you guys consider yourselves a dark kitchen or a ghost kitchen or does the terminology matter? And then for people that don't know, like just explain what that actually is. Yeah, so um, Dark Kitchen is obviously a very like terrifying name and it's, <laughs> it, people know what it is, so we're not afraid to use it. Um, it basically means it's just like kitchens and we have a lot of different brands doing different things from those spaces, but it's not, you know, customer facing. I think that's the, the main difference is, so to talk about kinds of businesses that are in our Dark Kitchen, I hate using Dark Kitchen, but you know, in, our, in our commercial, in our site basically, we have people doing delivery only brands. Uh, we have restaurants doing central production. So using those kitchens as where they produce all of like their sauce, their pasta, and then delivering it to their restaurants or dark kitchens, other dark kitchens. And then you have also people doing like drinks production or food science. There's a whole range of businesses, but coming under one roof basically. Um, and yeah, so it, I think they have a dark kitchens is quite a sinister name, but really what it is, is it's just like a space where there's lots of different kitchens and lots of different businesses doing different things. I think a lot of dark kitchens purely focus on the delivery, um, yep. market, which has had a lot, a lot of press, um, especially during COVID, um, of like, you know, some guy in, you know, Reading, who's basically started like 40 brands from one kitchen. So of course it, it does attract a little bit of negative press, but within our space, like you just have so many people doing totally different things. And I think that's why it is just a really good community. A lot of founders, but also we have like restaurant chains who are who've pivoted to delivery and are really focused on scaling just purely through having a kitchen and using aggregators like Uber Eats and Deliveroo and Just Eat. Yeah, it's so amazing. I find that the the concept, it, it's a nice amalgamation of like reusing space, excess space, you know, a, a, along with kind of, I suppose, a, a bit of a democratization of food, right? And obviously the pandemic has made things even more interesting because people can't go into restaurants. So yeah, I think it's, it, it, if, I'm really into this space. So I get it. I think some people probably don't know where all their like either the stuff that they get the cool stuff or nice stuff from the local spa is made or where some of their delivery stuff is being made. And, and that's essentially yeah. it, right? It's like a more flexible, interesting, better use of space in a commercial kitchen sort of environment. People are definitely, I think, you know, when they find out that foods come from a dark kitchen, people are like, what is this? You know, where <laughs> it come from? What is this space? It's dark, it's sinister. Reality, what it is, is a very hygiene and control environment which is probably better than your food coming from a restaurant because a totally. restaurant customer you know and when you are delivering from one of these dark kitchens the whole focus is delivery so you know how does it travel you know what ingredients can you use that stays fresh so the businesses that really work on delivery and do a great job really have to get it all right um 
you know, so I think it, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a very cool space. So I, I'm keen to learn. Um, so it was around 2018 and there was an excess use of space and you were renting it out and it spawned the idea of, okay, hang on, this might be a sort of uh, a parallel business. So we're going to, we're going to run with, with Karma Kitchen. So how did the first few few months kind of play out? Did it go to plan? Obviously, <laughs> then hit 2020, which we'll come on to in a bit. But like, what was it like before, you know, 2020? How did things run? Nothing ever goes to plan, I would say. Everything is chaotic. Um, it, it was, so we, we came up with the idea and really it was just like a piece of paper. And I never both Eki and me, my co-founder and sister, we'd never raised money before. And so with Karma Cans, it was revenue driven, you know, really hard, like never had any cash, always making like very critical decisions for business. And we realized to do this, it's a capital intensive business. You know, you've got to build the sites. Mm. And um, we went to raise money with just like a, a concept. And we did like a small seed round and it was just such a learning curve, like raising money and like pitching. And we both actually really enjoy that pitching element. And so when we closed our C round, which I think was like just around 300K, um, we built our first site in Hackney and super excited, like got a friend who was an architect involved. And we just like, Eki and I had a really good understanding of what we wanted it to look like because our background is in kitchens. You know, we worked, Eki's whole childhood was working in commercial kitchens. I helped support on that. And I was a kitchen porter for a bit. So I really got like where we wanted to create a place that was like a home for these businesses with glass and natural light. And, but the first, when we opened, we were like, it looks amazing. We've got loads of people signed up. This is so cool. And then, oh, the first few months was just like hell. The, we had loads of power issues and oh my God, it's just not a joke. Like we had a generator, the, the pumps, like the drainage was, a, was connected to the with the power and when we had this like power cut I think like UK power network or someone was doing some works and our power cut out we had to get this backup generator now imagine like oh no 15 to 20 brands all shouting at you for good, <laughs> good reason you're ruining their business and you're, there's a generator coming it's all we have no idea when I was like on the roof of our building at 5 a.m. with my with Eki and our ops manager at the time. And we just didn't know what we were just waiting for this generator guy to come. And it was, and then basically, because the drainage was connected to the power, the whole kitchen flooded. It looked like the Holy shit. no power, it was flooded. It was a disaster. And you just you get it sorted, um, a lot of apologies. And yeah, that was the first few months. It was hell. <laughs> So, that, so I mean, I think that that's a really interesting inflection point because I mean, so it, that sort of leads me to another question, which I think is really interesting, particularly in your space. Do you think it was a major advantage that you come from the kind of, I suppose, kitchen food culinary world? Yeah. Or do you think it was challenging because you knew all of the potential pitfalls? Maybe you didn't because of the, the generator thing and the, the flooding stuff. So yeah. yeah, talk me through that. I think a huge advantage really is coming from a food background and from working in kitchens and understanding what like our chefs need and want from a space. You know, when you, we're building, what we're trying to do is basically change this infrastructure of food and help support food businesses. Um, and that, you know, it comes from everything from understanding design, what chefs prefer. I think it's been a huge advantage. And also just like, we've built an amazing network of different mm businesses who've advised on you know what's important to them and one really important thing in these dark kitchens is a lot of the environments 
you know, if you have high staff churn because of the environment you're putting your team in, it's a really problematic thing for a business. So, you know, as I, I go back to this point, you know, we wanted to build this like home for the businesses. So they're excited to come into work and it's a real community. And you really feel that in our space. Um, there's just so, so much natural collaboration. It's not even like we're pushing people together because you have a shared kitchen for the startups, which almost is like an incubator. It's like really cheap, affordable, flexible space. And then opposite side of the kitchen is like the private kitchens, but everyone can like move between and there's glass and everyone chats and advise each other. You just, it's a really good environment. So I, I think like our background in food is, is really, really important. But of course we miss, we're missing probably other skills that maybe the tech side or the product side, you know, mm. that people that are doing this have. But I think that you can learn that. You can hire great people that can advise on that. But from the builds, that was the most important thing. We we knew that our first site, we knew what, it, what what we wanted from it, what we wanted to look like, and the most important parts of it, who we wanted in it. And I think that's why our space is quite unique as a commercial kitchen provider. And you, you, you've touched on it a couple of times there, the word community. And as, as an outsider, my observation is, yeah, you, you seem to have baked that um, into the business. Um, you've got youth programs, food academies. You've even got a, a marketplace for your, um, uh, for your customers, you know, so they can um, uh, acquire the stuff that they need, like kitchen roll and, you know, the stuff that they need to, 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 to fulfill um, their, their cooking duties. Was yeah. that like, did that happen organically or like, was that something that you guys set out to do from the start or was that something that kind of like evolved over time? So I think, yeah, I guess when we first started, it we, it definitely wasn't like a, a plan that we're like, we're going to build these kitchens, going to do this. But what we found from opening up our site in Hackney is that, for example, the let I'll start with the youth training. Um, one of the things that we saw was there was a huge demand for chefs and everyone in our kitchen was always looking for chefs and, and, we also realized that in the area we were, which is like Hackney Tower Hamlets, there was a huge unemployment with, with, within you. So we thought we could try and like solve these two issues. And we launched a like training program, which was like a six week program. And we worked with like the council and schools and basically trained these students in everything from like meat, but you know, fish, baking, baking, everything. And we worked with um, like, butchers and fishmongers and also like restaurateurs to, to help come up with this program and just basically put a, a whole, like a whole range of different people through this training program and then we placed them within our kitchen so that was really really cool and it started with that idea and then we basically um the kind of the free kit we call it winner kitchen for a year it's like a really bad name we really need to <laughs> But it kind of, it is what it is. Like it's, it does what it says on the can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. let's roll with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like but it. With me, we're going to come up with a better name for it, but it just launched. Um, and we basically give free kitchen space to eight brands for a year. And we came up with this idea. We wanted to basically, every new site we opened, um, do this. And what it's about is it's about engaging with local businesses who maybe didn't have the chance that art like Karma Can sit. And you know, we had a lot of luck. We found that space and we found the, the the equipment in the chocolate factory and the whole idea is that you basically audition through a video and the, we don't want a business plan we just want like someone with a really good concept and they know who they want to sell to and we came up with this idea and actually we went to Uber Eats who we have a good relationship with and they and they they funded it so right now it's just launched and we're green and we have a whole range of 
different people di at different ages and stages of their like careers who have basically decided that they want to do a food business. Everyone from like an amazing woman who does like dim sum to someone doing a delivery concept to a woman who's a single mum and over lockdown started making these like cakes. Um, and we basically provide the space for a year and support them through um, that year. And then hopefully the idea is that after they can take space, you know, they can become one of our like partners yeah. and take space within our kitchen. And as I think I touched on, we're kind of a portfolio company. So we have a whole range of different businesses from startups to SMEs to large production kitchens. So the idea is that they are kind of before that stage and then they have this kitchen and then they hopefully can move into our shared kitchen and, and maybe even take a private if it's really successful. So um, it's so cool. And I think having, again, like these founders who are similar to, you know, me when I started, um, just creates a great community within the space. And they're all just so innovative. Like food is innovative. And you see that in especially born out of like this pandemic. People, food is just adapt. People just change what they're doing and, and, and become really creative about how they survive. And we've seen so many of our business, like businesses who were like in corporate catering, pivot to delivery or NHS catering. It's just, a, it's, we're so close to all of this kind of amazing creativity that's so cool so it's like a little incubator program and then they can kind of move on and spawn from yeah yeah that's yeah. really interesting and i think you're right that the, the thing the, the nice thing about food well one food food is is delicious everyone likes it everyone has to consume it at some point and and like yeah i think that concept of pivoting i, I totally get it so i think it's a bit of a misconception kind of similar to like art where you know people will say i'm not good at art i can't draw or whatever i i don't necessarily subscribe to that i think the same is with food i think anyone can cook you just if you're really into it then you'll kind of maybe learn and, and become better but in terms of that pivot like there is no real like qualification you need to do something like this right like you can totally just pivot and, and start doing it yeah making cakes or like you know you're really good at making burritos you know start a burrito thing so i think it's a really interesting so, uh, one thing that we saw after like the last recession in 2008 is that whenever there's like a, a crisis um a lot of food businesses are born and it's because when let's say you work in the city and you with this idea you basically get forced to do the thing that you really want really want to love and mm. really love and um, we saw so many food businesses born out of that kind of time. And I think the same thing is going to happen right now. You know, we're coming out of a really difficult period and we're going to have a lot of food innovation that's born out of it. It's like a, it's a pattern that seems to happen. I want to talk a little bit about the brand. So my observation as an outsider is you guys have got really sort of fun, modern brand your tone of voice your visual your content like the outward kind of vibe which from my perspective seems uh quite different to some of the old school commercial kitchen operators um and it was was that like a conscious thing or like was that just how it evolved like talk me through the kind of i suppose the branding element to to to, to um, come kitchens is yeah so Eki and I definitely wanted to have fun with the brand. And again, it within the space, it's pink. You know, we have pink tiles. I hate pink, but I just wanted <laughs> to be, I wanted to be the opposite of what you think a dark, like a commercial kitchen would yeah. be. And with our brand, we wanted to reflect that if you look at it, 
is kind of black at the back and this color at the front it's kind of making a joke out of like the dark kitchen world and 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 really what it is is we have so many vibrant amazing I hate the word vibrant too I don't know why you say, but really cool amazing brands and it's you know our branding just reflects that and really our whole story is not really about us with the infrastructure it's the story of the businesses within this space um, and actually Droga5 a huge advertising agency helped us with our branding we they run a program um, which is for like women in business in the US and I saw it and I I got in touch with their London team and just said like would you ever take on we were really small and um, it's like pro bono work and they said like look we're a lot smaller than our American cousins but you know if you if you want to send an email like you tell, tell us a little bit about your business anyway I ended up suggesting that I just go down to their office in Liverpool Street and I met with one of their you know their amazing team and I just basically pitched us to, to them and and the woman just she was so cool she just said look I love this and I love the fact that you're two women kind of in property very unheard of mm. and um, I want to do this and so we worked with Droga5 coming up with this really fun branding um, and we used an amazing photographer called Maisie Cousin and she does very sexualized food photography which you wouldn't normally pair with what we were doing and there seems to be a bit of a gender divide on like who likes it like women seem to love it men find it a little bit it's, I don't know it's just funny it just gets a it gets an interesting reaction but I love it and we put it everywhere and <laughs> um, on our Instagram in our space and it's just it's it's very cool I just think it makes me feel like really happy <laughs> yeah yeah my, my my perception is it's like again and I suppose maybe I'm a little bit because I kind of understand the commercial kitchen space and understand yeah. the, the sort of more traditional operators and understand that like you're kind of a total antithesis of that and it, it, it to me it is a super fun brand it, there's kind of it's all baked into it there's the community element it's about the kind of brands that you work with you know it's all rolls into yeah more of a brand right compared to say a commercial kitchen like how many commercial kitchens can someone name you know what i mean whereas it, karma kitchens has got a, you know there's a brand element to it so yeah it's quite like like um b to b to c really versus like mm. um, which is like an interesting take on what we do. Like it's very, we engage, we really want to engage with the consumer, but also the local area that we open in. Like we do a lot of work when we move to a green on engaging with that area. And we want to be something that's celebrated when we come to um, Wood Green or Camden or Bermondsey, wherever it is, you know, we want to really engage with that local community, not just providing like jobs, but doing loads of cool stuff, like inviting people down. We, yeah. we're, we're doing, um, click and collect soon which is really exciting so yep. again like consumers can come down to the space and see it and it just kind of all feeds into the digital like ecosystem that we want to build definitely that leads me to uh an interesting question one i wanted to explore with you so how do you go about like um choosing locations is is it is it super data driven or is it more about like what's available and what's affordable yeah, so th there's three parts to it, really. The first is we look, we work towards the councils about the 10-year plan of an area, which is really interesting. And, you know, what's happening is a lot of residential being built. Are there similar patterns to, for example, in Hackney, happening in Wood Green? And then we, um, it is data-driven. You know, we look at population density, um, decreasing uh, age in that area. Those are, like, key metrics. Um, and also the other part, so after the data element, we go into talking to our different partners and basically see where they want to scale to, where do they want to be mm. in the next 
five years. So there's kind of three parts to, to that. Um, and I think that's the most important part really is finding the best locations for the businesses. So we spend a lot of time doing it. <laughs> I want to switch gears slightly and I want to, I want to talk a little bit um, more about like the team and the team dynamics. And I'm, I'm especially interested in the concept that you, you work alongside your sister. So talk to me a little bit about that. Um, like what's it like Sisterhood. starting a business with, with your sister? What are like the advantages and are there any challenges? Um, yeah, so when we started, it was a complete disaster. Like we never planned to work together. She had a background in food. I sort of jumped in. I didn't even know what my, I kind of lead like sales revenue. I had no idea even what that was. And we're just figuring it out as we went along. And I think at the beginning, the biggest problem was we didn't have clear roles. So we were overlapping a lot. Like I was getting involved in the kitchen. I hated coriander at the time. She loved coriander. <laughs> And we just like fight over really stupid things. She actually threw a packet, like a, a can of chippies at my head. Like, it was it was bad. And we just were fighting, bickering. And then over time, what happened is we really started to trust each other and we had clear roles. I always say this when people come to me and they're like, we're starting a business together, we're friends. The most important thing when you have, and I think co having a co-founder is so key to starting a business, mm. but mm. the most important thing is that you have very different roles. Because honestly, if you overlap in any place, that's where you're arguing, that's where you will argue. And she was very much strategy operations that I became very much more like sales revenue. Mm -hmm. We really trust each other. And our working relationship has improved. We, we honestly, like, hardly fight you know the best thing about being sisters is the honesty and mm. whenever we think in a completely different way and we approach situations basically in opposite ways and it, it's been so amazing because we get to the best results but we can also be so honest and i think when you've got like colleagues you have to kind of tiptoe around your feelings and the truth but the, the sibling element means that like we just kind of have it out and we just get to the conclusion a lot faster so it has been the best thing. Honestly, I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to work without her um, ever <laughs> in anything I do. Like we have just got the best like power relationship. It's it's so great to see. And when I think about where we started, oh my God, like our parents were just like, what are you doing? Don't work together. And our friends were like, this is never going to work. But, you know, also when we hired like our first team members, we had to be professional. <laughs> we couldn't just shouting at each other. So we need to learn to be professional together. And then with that trust in different roles, we just got so, yeah, so much better at working together. Now it's just like amazing. Oh, that's, that's so good to hear. Um, I'm keen to understand then, I suppose, with that dynamic, you know, you're working with your, with your sister. Yeah. Like, how do you guys juggle two businesses? Like, mm -hmm. and, and do you think that there's a point at which one or both of you might sort of focus just on, on one? Um, yeah. yeah. Talk me through that. So with Karma Cans, the only reason that we can start Karma Kitchen is because we have an amazing, strong team that have really been with us from, from the beginning. You know, Karma Cans team members are literally, they, it's their business really now. And I think Eki and I are not really as involved in Karma Cans at all. Like our main focus right now is definitely Karma Kitchen. And the only reason for that is we just trust our amazing team. And they're so, they're so great. I, I, I feel like it's theirs as well. So yeah, the focus for us is definitely Palm Kitchen, both of us, and that's where our attention is. But that is only because we've built an amazing um, 
team. And it took a long, you know, it takes a long time to build a good team and culture, but Karma Kansas has done it. And I feel so proud of that element of it. Like it, I feel very relaxed leaving it in their hands. And, you know, I have lunch with them and check and we will share the same office. So, you know, we definitely know what's going on. And the only time they really needed us is obviously pandemic hit and corporate catering just died overnight. Like it, it was a crazy time for Karma Kansas, but with this incredible team that we have, we managed to get a contract with the NHS and then we did food banks and we even opened a restaurant in the summer, a rooftop restaurant. So yeah, I have no worries about them in handling it, but yeah, it's it's an interesting, we've, we've it's changed business models so many times the last year, but it's finally going back to corporate catering. But yeah, it's all, it's all about our team when it comes to Karma Cans. Well, we've, I've been purposely trying to avoid COVID in any of these discussions because I think there's, there's plenty of literature, content, uh, podcast, whatever news yeah. about it. However, it's slightly unavoidable, right? Um, sure. Talk to me a little bit more about some of those, um, I suppose, uh, how your team adapted, maybe more on the, well, maybe more on the Karma Can side or, or Karma Kitchens, but yeah, talk me through like what your observations and learnings are at this point, like sort of looking back from, from 2020. Yeah. So, so Karma Cans and Karma Kitchen had very different stories in COVID, and that was a really difficult thing to kind of watch. Um, Karma Cans is a corporate catering business, and every within a week, every office closed, and it just we we just couldn't predict that, and we closed for like two weeks and went into like, you know, what the hell is going to happen for the next? We don't know how long this is going to go on for, and the team were incredible, and we. Yeah, we got, we were really lucky. I mean, it was really hard. We're doing a thousand meals a day for NHS at like very low cost and we're a premium corporate catering business. So we really had to redo everything, our commercials and that really carried us through though. And it kept the team just together and working and it was the best thing. And then that contract ended and we kind of then went to food bank catering, but we were every single month, just like what's going to happen. And it was the opposite, I guess at Karma Kitchen, what was interesting is before COVID, our customers were 50% kind of central production units. So people mm -hmm. did food, corporate catering, yep. production and 50% delivery. And what happened is within a week, all of those businesses doing corporate catering, street food production had, had stopped. And 90% of our business was delivery. So we had a complete shift in our customer group at Karma Kitchen. And of course, the demand for kitchens was very, very high. Everyone was trying to do delivery. Um, but it, me it meant that like a lot of businesses were very vulnerable. You know, delivery is hard. It's not mm -hmm. easy. Aggregators take a lot of commission. So to make it work, it does take a lot. So there was definitely a shift in our customer group. And and I think, you know, we were lucky that we had a customer group, but it was sad to see 50% of our business just go and be replaced with just delivery because those corporate catering businesses, the street food, they're a really big part of who we are and they're very stable businesses often. So we are excited now to kind of see them slowly coming back. And we really want to get that balance back to 50-50 in our, in our site if possible. Um, but, you know, with food, it's constantly changing. We've actually seen a a new category being born out of COVID. Um, you may be very familiar with restaurant meal kits. They've had like, you know, they're they're doing so well on Patty and Bun or Pizza Pilgrim. And what we've seen is a lot of restaurants are actually taking kitchens to do these meal kits because even after COVID, they're still popular. Yeah, know? yeah, 
you're at home and you can't go to patty and bun you can now order a meal kit if you're like you're in the restaurant have a restaurant experience like it's super cool and that is something that we would never predict that's a huge inbound like uh, category for us getting so many inquiries about kitchen space for just that so two very different experiences in both those companies um but you know at the center of it it's like the food element you can be if especially if you've got a small agile team you can definitely you know, pivot. And I think we've seen that with our brands within Karma Kitchen is the smaller ones have really like adapted. You know, the first lockdown was really difficult because it was the, the fear. Mm. A lot of breakfast businesses shut because they were worried about their team. But by the second lockdown, a lot of them had opened and had a really good plan. Um, so yeah, it's two very different stories. Wild world. Yeah. So interesting. Like, I mean, serendipitous that you'd sort of started the the karma kitchen just before and it sounds like it was an an interesting hedge against some of the other challenges on the on the, on the catering side but then to see all of that interesting insight into the karma kitchen's kind of client or portfolio base as well yeah it's fascinating i mean you, you've touched on it a couple of times there i can't remember what you you just referred was aggregator i'm assuming you're referring to like a a, a, an uber eats and a, and a delivery yeah, exactly. so maybe, maybe we'll, 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 well i've said it now let's just say they remain anonymous <laughs> food delivery apps what, what's your take on them i mean yeah it's a growing it's a huge growing market it's amazing like in the last year their growth has been just crazy what we thought that was going to happen over five years is happening in a year especially in markets like in in spain and in france who are a little bit behind um and i think what they have so what we used to see was you know people would have a street food stall and then use that as like their stepping stone into food and then maybe open a restaurant right now they're basically opening a delivery only brand we're seeing that mm. so well. and the aggregators like delivery only breeds which see basically have enabled uh, businesses to, to start these food businesses with just delivery only model and then often that's how they test the market you know you test the market it's so cool you can open a kitchen get to market within two weeks it's a lot cheaper than opening a restaurant test that neighborhood see if there's demand and then you know often use that as a stepping stone into a restaurant if it's been mm. really successful mm. i think it's kind of the new street food uh, movement and these uh, delivery apps kind of enabled that uh and their growth as i said is, has been has been pretty pretty mad so i think if you do well on the platforms it's good but it, it's hard to get it right it's not easy i think a lot of people think okay great i'm just going to open a restaurant and it's going to be great but there are <laughs> algorithms and it's it's hard it's hard to to get the high oh dude I, yeah it's so funny so, uh, yeah i've worked in in kitchens before as a as a cook and i think there's a um I think for people that aren't in the hospitality space, there's always this romantic idea of like opening a restaurant or a cafe or whatever. And I, I don't think they quite understand how much of a slog it is. It's yeah. so tough. Like just, you know, that becomes your life, you know, you're all consumed and, mm. you know, and the, the interesting thing is like, the space that you guys occupy within that, which makes things so much more easier, right? Like you, you talk about it before that the, the, the the commercial outlay for starting a restaurant or a cafe or whatever is huge. And then you get to take out a lease, you know, on the space and then, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. So I, th I think it's really interesting and uh, you know, the space that you guys operate in. And I think yeah. that the, hopefully people get a bit more of an appreciation of how difficult it is to run a food business. Completely. One thing that we're seeing 
um, which is amazing, is actually businesses who are doing, rather doing using the delivery apps, they're selling through Instagram and doing collect. Yeah. And we have an amazing business that's been with us for, from really the beginning in Hackney called Hot and Juicy Shrimp. They're so great. They came to me like, I don't know, over a year ago and they have this great concept, it's like shrimp in a bag. And they basically do it all through Instagram. They have like a crazy following and it's all through collection. And that's what's amazing. We're seeing people that are actually taking it into their own hands. They don't want to pay the commission. So they're just building following and spending that time on marketing. And it's honestly, Hot Industry is so good. You've got to, you've got to try it. It's a collection from Hackney, but hopefully they want, we're opening kitchen in South London and they know that they want to get a South London hub because they've got a lot of followers down there. Um, so you get these like businesses that are technically, I guess, like delivery model, but they don't use delivery platforms, um, which is cool to see. I think, yeah, it's so interesting. I, I, I totally, I, I feel that. I think there's going to be some interesting like direct to consumer models that spawn out of this. Cause yeah, obviously you've got the the big aggregators like the Deliveroo's and the Uber Eats. And I agree, I think as a, it's, to me, Uber Eats and like um, Deliveroo are kind of a similar thing to Amazon, right? If you're in the kind of e-com space, right? It's a big marketplace, you've got big exposure and you get to a lot of people very, very quickly, but commissions are kind of high. And then you've got the the slurps of the world who are like a direct consumer model as, as, a, as, a, as a food vendor um with lesser commission that you pay to to that uh software and you've got a more direct relationship with your customer but then there's going to be other things yeah like people just setting up instagram stuff click and collect and you know away you go um yeah it's very interesting in fact another one of that <laughs> uh there's a guy there's probably loads of this stuff going on there's, there's uh, um, someone on my street who's started baking bread and now there's a big whatsapp group and it's all click and collect on the street but it's now like He's got the whole Walthamstow area, I think. He's like making bread. Literally just out of his house. It's like two doors down. So there's kind of like these weird micro things going on of all that sort of stuff. Also, like in, in lockdown, these there were so many stories of this. You know, people, because restaurants were closed, like people started making stuff at home and then selling them to their local area. And then we basically get them at the stage where they're like, okay, it's getting pretty popular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next stage, I'm like, okay, well, the first commercial kitchen, and it's terrifying for them. They've never ever been to a commercial kitchen before, and that's why the share kitchen is so good because it's it runs on eight hour shifts. It's monthly rolling. You don't commit anything longer than a month, and we get so many like panic people coming around. They're like, actually, this isn't that scary. I'm like, look, we'll help you. We'll, <laughs> your like FSA rating, like this is the paperwork that you need, but it's a, it's a terrifying jump from like, your, your home kitchen. It is. You know what I think is one of the most terrifying things is the actual scale of like the equipment. Like you go from cooking in like a pot and a pan at home, right? To these industrial sized pots and you're like, I could fit in there. Or the like the huge bar mix things they've got, you know, it's like a pneumatic drill. It's that big. Well, like the combi ovens in our kitchen. <laughs> so advanced like computers i mean i really struggle whenever i cook in one i just it's almost too high tech and <laughs> basically karma can's never had that high tech we it was all secondhand equipment so i could work our ovens but these computer ovens now like everything's programmed in and you know it's it's a lot to take on <laughs> it's daunting yeah i could totally get you when you go for sort of you know home cook to going into the commercial space yeah it's, it's quite a, a change in direction um I, I, I'm, I'm keen. I think we might need to draw it towards a close. So I, I want to touch on a couple of just final questions. Um, first one, 
what what would you be doing if you weren't running Karma Cans and Karma Kitchen? Oh my gosh, that is a good question. I don't know where I would be. I don't. I, I think. Good question. I I just don't know. It's so hard because I start. We started so young. I was twenty one. Eki was twenty two, and. I think it would have to be in food because food was such a big part of like our upbringing. And um, my like Nana is like, she's Russian Jewish and she would just always make like such good food. I actually, you know, at the time I didn't like it. It was like borscht and herring and stuff mm, like that. Mm. But I was always brought up with like feeders, you know, big, <laughs> yeah. you never could eat enough and you could get told off like not taking birds and, you know, really healthy environment <laughs> and so much cream um, and such heavy food. And I think that it would be probably in, in food. I can't imagine a world that isn't linked to it. Obviously, Karma Kitchen is more infrastructure and it's a lot of tech, but it's the core is, is helping food businesses. So that's a good question. I haven't ever thought about that, but I think it would probably be within food. I think that's a good answer. It sounds like that's baked into your DNA. So yeah, it feels like that's 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 the calling. Okay, final question. And this is, I'm going to pose a bit of a, a scenario to you. Um, it's your last supper. Yeah. The reason for the last supper is up to you. I don't know. We'll see. Um, and you, you, you can either throw a dinner party or you can go to a restaurant. Um, what what's on the menu at the dinner party or what restaurant are you going to? Okay, this is great. I love throwing dinner party. I love hosting and I love having people around. So obviously this has been a really typical time for me. Um, so I would start with, I love dumplings so much. Nice. Um, I love them. And I, I, I cheat, I buy the skins, but I'll make the filling. I also really love frozen dumplings. I always have them in my freezer. Um, so I, I think I would start with dumplings. This is going to be the weirdest meal. So okay, hang on, hang on. St- steamed or fried? Um, I like them steamed, but steamed. I might throw a few gyros in there. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I'll do like the soy with the with the rice wine vinegar as yep. well. Yep. Nice. And Parma cans makes a really good exo sauce, so I'll maybe have some of that in in Ooh, the mix. Lovely. And the main, okay. I love oxtail. It's weird, but. I love it so much. I think it's one of the best cuts of meat. And I make really good Jamaican oxtail with like coconut rice. Mm. It's like, it's slow cooked for, I mean, like eight hours. Um, The recipe, it's Kwame um, Awanchi and he is amazing cook. And I kind of stole it from him and then made some changes, but it's basically slow cooked like curry powder and five spice with scotch bonnets and serve with coconut rice and I made it for uh, some friends and everyone just like loves it so it would be that it's so good and then I'm not really a dessert person and I only eat like two desserts sticky toffee pudding and crumble so it would have to be sticky toffee pudding I just love it and it's the only thing if I go to a restaurant I'll never have it but if they've got sticky toffee pudding on the menu it's the best it's so good it's so good yeah what a good meal (laughs) oh mate all right well I'm salivating. So <laughs> that sounds delicious. Um, I think that's a, a, a great way to end it. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining me. That was amazing. Having me. There you go. A massive thank you to Jeannie for joining me. You can check her out at Karma Cans, karmacans.co.uk and Karma Kitchen. 
karmakitchen.co. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Klaviyo, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at klaviyo.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all of your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time. Being ignored.